Great, can I pray for you? Cool, let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word that is powerful um, and active um, and like a double-edged short that divides between bone and marrow. I pray that as you uh, speak through Nathan this morning, um, that this would cut into our hearts, God, and uh, be effectual for change and change in the gospel. Let's pray for your words uh, for Nathan, uh, that you uh, would speak to us through him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Cool. Can you guys hear me? Morning, everyone. Um, so for those of you who do not know me, my name's Nathan. I'm married to Mandy. She was there with our two girls, and uh, yeah, I'm part of the eldership te- team on this church. And I really want to commend um, just Prisca and the team with, with Kids Church. Uh, often I find myself, or I used to find myself there with Elizabeth, and I felt like I wasn't really missing out on uh, the preach because the gospel is just shared with so much conviction in our kidsmen. So I really want to commend them and commend you guys at Recon. Um, it's really amazing what you guys are doing and uh, bringing the gospel into our children at a young age. So this morning, um, we are getting back into our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, this is part three of the series, so if you haven't watched the first two, I really want to encourage you to go and watch them, and uh, I've just found it really profound, uh, just having a fresh look at this sermon, which can be quite familiar for us, I found it really profound and really just seen God speak to me uh, personally, and uh, just... For the purpose of a kind of quick recap, uh, in week one, Ollie shared, uh, shared on uh, Matthew chapter four, which or a portion of Matthew chapter four, which comes before the Sermon on the Mount, and is actually uh, kind of what Jesus has in mind as he preaches um, that sermon. And we saw a fresh glimpse of the mission of Jesus and the good news that Jesus came to bring, which was a good news about the kingdom of God, that there was a new king coming, there's a new king on the throne, and the kingdom of God is being established. And, and Oli so helpfully unpacked what kingdom meant, that it's not a, like a place, but actually it's a condition. It's being under the rule uh, of God, and, the, and there's this call as the, the, the gospel of the kingdom of God goes out, it's a call to repent, to turn, and to submit to the rule of the new king. And I want to just uh, read a quote for us. It says, The life of discipleship is a radical lifestyle of repentance and participation in his active goodness, where right actions and obedience to the rule of the king flow from a heart aligned with his. That's by a, a preacher and theologian and generally just a good guy, Ollie uh, Um He wrote it on our like preacher's group, and I was like, bro, I'm going to have to quote you there. First of many, Ollie. Um, and then in week two, Paul brought us through the Beatitudes, all of the Beatitudes in one uh, preach. It was quite a profound uh, sermon. And one of the key things was that you need to have a right perspective. As you come to the Sermon on the Mount, your perspective has to be right. And he used these two kind of striking analogies. The one was, you know, is it good to see a lion? And your perspective on how you see the lion uh, answers the question on whether it's good or not. Either it's uh, deeply terrifying or it's amazing as you sit on the back of a bucky and you're going on a game drive. So what we need to see is that our perspective cannot be, as we come to the Beatitudes, that it's like this tick box of things we need to do in order to get in. But actually the Beatitudes are blessings which follow the already disciple, the blessings which follow the already disciple as God cultivates these characteristics in our lives. And you'll remember uh, Paul spoke about Michael Eaton's idea around this, saying, congratulations, you're blessed. 
as you experience the Beatitudes in your life. So this morning we're coming to the next portion, uh, it's Matthew 5, verse 11 to 16, and uh, it's arguably kind of one of the most well-known portions of this sermon, and it's, it's the section on salt and light, yeah, where Jesus describes his disciples as salt and light. And again, I want us to, um, this is such a familiar passage for us, and I thought to myself, you know, often singing, you know, uh, I'm going to let my light shine, that kind of song to Elizabeth when I put it to bed, and it's just something that's so familiar to us, and I think sometimes it can lose its potency and the, and the, me, and the meaning that, that it has. Uh, because it's so familiar. So I want to ask us, you know, as we come, just to lay some of those uh, preconceived ideas down and ask that God would speak to us afresh this morning. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll read the text uh, and then get into it. Father, we thank you that you're good, that you're kind. Father, we thank you for the blessing of children, that uh, we thank you for the blessing of kidsmen and that they are being brought up in the ways of the Lord. We pray for blessing over their lives, Father, as they move into the next, next stage as you would continue to bless them. We pray for us as we come and we sit under your word. I pray, Father, that you would speak to us, King. I've just been so struck by this, the reality that us being salt and light is an ordinary, everyday miracle. There's something so ordinary about it, it just happens in everyday life, and yet there's something so profound about it in the way that you use it, and you use our, our, the way that we relate to the world in a profound way, which causes them to turn to you and give them glory. So I pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word. King, I pray that you would take my humble hands and fumbling words, Father, and that you would speak truth through it. So won't you turn with me uh, to Matthew 5, uh, and uh, we're going to actually read from verse 11, and uh, it says, Blessed are you, this is Jesus speaking, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." And I want us just to, as we kind of go into this passage, to remember the context. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And the Beatitudes portion which came before this is not something we need to do in order to get in, but actually characteristics of those who are already in. And the blessings which will follow those disciples. So the salt and light, Jesus turns to these two kind of ideas. The salt and light portion serves in a way as a crown to the Beatitudes. So we see the Beatitudes tell us how we are to live and characteristics of those who are Jesus' disciples. And then the salt and light portion serves in a way to describe then how we will relate to the world around us as we live these, these out and the impact that we will have. And we will begin to see that we are agents of the kingdom of God 
as we live out the Beatitudes, as we become salt and life to the world, we are agents of the kingdom of God and we are heralds of the new covenant of Christ through the way that we live. And uh, if we just go back to verse 11, um, it says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And we see this kind of, it's almost very subtle, but it's actually a very profound link that Jesus is bringing in here to the prophets that came before us. The prophets in the Old Testament who were heralds of the Old Covenant. And what Jesus is essentially saying is rejoice as you live out the Beatitudes amidst suffering because you are being like the prophets who came before you and your reward will be great in heaven. Jesus is saying they were heralds of the Old Covenant. You now are heralds of the New Covenant. You are heralds of the Kingdom of God. He's saying that as you relate to the world, as the Beatitudes describe, you will face persecution. But rejoice because your life will be a signboard for the kingdom of God. As you live these outs, you will face persecution, but rejoice because your life will be a signboard for the kingdom. And uh, remember again the context of the sermon. You know, Jesus in, in Matthew 4, he's describing how he came with the gospel of the kingdom of God. The good news that there's a new king on the throne. And Jesus kind of hones in this morning on our passage and says that, that you know, there's a new kingdom here. You're going to be agents of this kingdom. As you live out as agents of this kingdom, you're going to live out as the Beatitudes describe. And what that's going to look like, he kind of has these two images in mind. Uh, and he describes how as you live it out, you're going to look a little bit like salt. You're going to look a little bit like salt of the earth. And you're going to little, look a little bit like light in the world. And I, I find this fascinating because Jesus is, is he's describing the Beatitudes. And then he's thinking about how his disciples will relate to the world. How are my disciples going to relate to the world? They're going to relate to the world like salt. And they're going to relate to the world like sight, like light. And... Um, it's fascinating because when I was first thinking about this, I was like, how do these things, they seem like two separate kind of ideas. How do they find a sense of unity in what Jesus is trying to say? And there's a writer and theologian called Jonathan T. Pennington, and he says, uh, both salt and light metaphors are communicating the same idea. It's that Jesus' disciples are now the heralds of the new and lasting covenant being affected by Jesus. So we are the heralds of the new and lasting covenant, and the covenant is being affected by Jesus. And he speaks about how this, this unity is primarily found as we look back to the book of Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah himself, he prophesied about a new covenant that would come, and there would be a Messiah who would bring in this new covenant. And as he prophesies about this reality which is coming, he uses both these ideas, light and salt about a covenant which would be established and founded by, founded by a coming Messiah, and the covenant would break forth into darkness like light. And we see, so there's like this kind of clear unity in these images, and yet there's quite a, uh, a real distinctness between the two in what Jesus is trying to communicate, how we as disciples will relate to the world. 
And um, before we kind of go into detail and how we unpack these and what it looks like for our lives, I want to just set the foundation again firmly on Jesus. And I want to remind us that we are heralds of the new covenant, but Jesus is the one affecting the new covenant. Jesus is the one working out the gospel and his grace in, in the lives of people around us. We are merely the ones who kind of carry the message of what Jesus has done and what Jesus can do. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, the, okay, there's a new covenant that Jesus has brought in. Who is the active agent? We aren't the active agent. We aren't the one who works it out. Jesus is the one who works out the new covenant into the world around us. And we are heralds. We point to Jesus. We say, hey, look, look to Jesus. Look at the work that he's done. You know, this light that is shining in the world, it's not, it's not self-derived. It's not something that I've generated in and of myself. Somebody has done a mighty and miraculous work in me, and we herald the work of Jesus. And uh, it's fascinating as you think about this, because as you think about the ideas of salt and light, we actually begin to see that Jesus himself uh, is salt, and Jesus himself is light. That Jesus, who kind of applies these ideas to us, himself actually embodies them. So firstly, we see Jesus is salt, and it's this reality that the earth in its sin is in rebellion to him. And the earth, in fact, is like a corpse which is rotting away. And uh, Jesus is salt which is rubbed into it to prevent it from decaying. And even more so when you look at some of the, the writings of, of Paul specifically, that the world around us and our sin and we before, we were in fact dead. And Jesus brought us to life. That there's a, there's a reality where Jesus doesn't just preserve something from decaying. He actually brings something that was dead to life. Ephesians 2, 1 to 5, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So the reality is the world around us is like a decaying corpse. It's like strong language, but that's the reality of sin in the world. And Jesus comes and preserves life. Secondly, Jesus is the light. So Jesus is the salt and Jesus himself is the light. In John 8, 12, we see that, in fact, Jesus uh, describes himself like this. It's not others saying, you know, Jesus is kind of a little bit like light. Actually, Jesus himself describes himself like that. In verse 12, it says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So the truth is that Jesus himself has broken light into the darkness of the world around us. And as he does that, he welcomes us, his sons and daughters, into that light. 
So Jesus is the one who, who works out the good news of the kingdom. He's the king on the throne. He's the one working in people's lives around us and in our own lives and bringing, doing a restorative work on the world around us. And as he does that, he calls his followers, his people, to be agents of that kingdom, to be heralds of what he's done. And Jesus here describes then two ways in which we kind of herald, two ways in which we point to him. And the first one is that we herald as salt. Secondly, we herald as light. And I want to just remind us that, that at the end, uh, Jesus speaks about how both of these things, they, uh, they, we do them with the purpose that as the world sees the way that we live, they will give glory to our Father. So firstly, we herald as salt, salt of the earth. And uh, it's uh, quite fascinating when you, when you think about this because uh, I just want to read it for us and, and just kind of note Jesus' language here. In verse 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. And there's almost this kind of like emphatic sense. He's saying you and you alone. He's speaking to his disciples. You and you alone are the salt of the earth. You, the already disciple, you are the salt of the earth. And as this passage then applies to us, it's saying you, church, like me and you, we are the salt of the earth and nobody else. Jesus is effectively saying, I have great faith in you. I have great faith in you. I believe that you will function as salt of the world. I have great faith in you. I believe that you will function as salt of the world. And as, as you think about this, you can kind of think, well, why would Jesus choose salt? Like he's thinking about, okay, my people are living out in the world and there's a way in which they're going to interact with the world. Why would he choose salt? Why would that kind of idea come to mind? And uh, as we've kind of briefly looked at, but the, the, the primary function of salt in the time of Jesus was as a preservative. You know, we kind of use it as a flavorant to put on food. Um, but then it was used to, they would put it onto meat to prevent it from decaying. And as I understand, that's how drovors is made. You like put a lot of salt onto it so that it doesn't decay. It actually dries out into something that you can eat. And so in that time, the primary function of salt was to preserve meat from decaying. And if we understand it in that context, Jesus is saying that the world around us tends towards decomposition. It tends towards, it's, it's wanting to rot in the sin and the darkness that it's in. The world wants to rot and decay. And the church then functions like salt, which should be poured out onto the world to prevent it from disintegrating. Jesus is saying, humanity without me is a dead body rotting and falling apart. And you, my followers, are the salt that must be rubbed into the flesh to halt the decomposition. So it's quite a, powerful, <laughs> quite a powerful image as you think about it. But that's the reality of the world around us. We're not in a half-light, half-dark space. The world around us without God is darkness. It's like a dead body rotting away. And God uses his believers to carry the gospel out like salt, which preserves it from decaying. So how do we do this? Uh, we do it through our good works and the way that we carry the gospel into the world around us. We do this as our lives proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. 
And uh, it's this powerful reality about salt, that, that the idea of salt is that it should highlight the sin in people around us, and then it should elicit the best out of them, it should draw the best out of them, highlight the sin, because they can see there's a distinctness, and then draw the best out of them. And um, I'm probably going to embarrass Alex Bowley here, but um, <laughs> she looks embarrassed. Um, <laughs> She was just sharing with me a few weeks ago um, something at school where she doesn't swear at school, and some of her friends noticed this uh, to the point where they wanted to try and not swear um, because it obviously looked quite good to not swear. So they wanted to try and be like Alex and not swear, and uh, it just it, it, it hit me with the, almost like the ordinary yet kind of profoundness of our saltiness in the world. That it's like, oh wow, you know, this this actually, I, I see the sin in my my heart, and actually maybe that's a better way to do things, and it elicits the best in us. And uh, R. Kent Hughes, um, I found this quote quite profound. He says, "To live a life that is so salted that others are drawn to God and want to live lives like ours is indeed beautiful." And you see this in an ordinary yet profound way through Alex's life. They see the saltiness in her life, and they want to live lives more like hers. And it's a beautiful thing, and that should be our lives. You know, the things that we do, people are drawn to living a life differently because of our saltiness. So saltiness is a preservative, but then saltiness is also a flavorant. And uh, I'm sure many of us, we've eaten food before, and you know when salt needs more salt, or if it's been well salted. So there's a distinctness in whether the presence of salt is there or if it's not there. And so too should our lives be in the world. There should be a distinctness about being a Christian in the world. And the distinctness should also have a flavor to it. And I, I love this idea that the world around us should experience the flavor of the church the goodness of the church, the, that they should see the joy of living a life in relationship with God. That should be distinct. They can see something is different here. There's a joy of a life lived in the, in the covenant with God. So we're to flavor and we are to preserve. And then Jesus goes on after that to kind of give us a warning around our saltiness. And uh, essentially he's calling us to stay salty. He's calling us to stay, stay salty. And if there's any um, influences in the room, um, you can use it or don't use it, like hashtag staying salty. If you, you're like at a bra and you're drinking water, everyone else is drinking beers, and then you just hashtag stay salty. Uh, you can use it for free if you want. Um, but verse 13, let's get back to Scripture. Verse 13, it says, You are the salts of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So Jesus is giving a clear warning here to his disciples. He's saying, stay salty. That if salt loses its saltiness, it is no longer good for anything. But as we think about salt, salt is actually a very stable element. I think that's what you call it. And um, so in Jesus' mind, he wasn't actually thinking that like, the composition of salt will change. Like there's an identity change in salt here. I think what he's talking about is that there's, there's, a, there's a dilution. Like salt is going to become diluted with other things to the point where it's no longer distinct. It's no longer distinct from the world around it, but it actually just looks like everything else around it. And in that sense, it loses its 
saltiness. Arkin Hughes, um, he says again, he says, this does not mean a loss of salvation. So this isn't what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying you were a son, but now you lost your saltiness, so you're no longer a son. What he's actually talking about is, is it does not mean a loss of salvation, but a vibrancy and fruitful testimony. It's a dilution. It's like our lives don't anymore look any different. You know, we're still a part of the family of God, but it's kind of hard to see if you are. Like the, the distinctness in our lives is gone. And I, I, for me, this is really convicting, and I, I'm hoping that it is for us as well, that we really need to test ourselves. Is there a distinctness in our lives? If you think about uh, materialism or pleasures or um, ethics, is it different to the world around us, or does it kind of just blend in? Is there a sense in which we have lost our saltiness? But the wonder is that if we have lost our saltiness, all we need to do is return back to Jesus. We need to return back to the source of our salt and the source of everything that makes us distinct in the world. Our Kent Hughes says, we are salt, and he, he's talking about Jesus, wants us to cultivate our saltiness by constantly communing with him and being constantly filled with his spirit. We need to cultivate our saltiness by constantly communing with him and being constantly filled with his spirit. So firstly, we, we herald, we carry the message of Jesus out into the world as salts. And secondly, we herald as the light of the world. Verse 14, again, it says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, I want us to just quickly note that in, in John uh, 8 verse 12, Jesus describes himself as light. So just think about it. In John 8, Jesus describes himself as light. And it's quite fascinating when you think about the context of it, that uh, in the day before Jesus does this, the Jews celebrate what was called the festival of lights. And they were celebrating the cloud of fire um, in the time of the Israelites. And they would light these torches in the city of Jerusalem. And the torches would shine so brightly that the whole city would be light. The whole city would be light. And the next day, probably with some of these torches still kind of smoking, Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. It's like you celebrated this light yesterday. You praise God for this light and what it did for you. I am that light. So it's quite profound. And I want us just to remind us that it's upon this foundation, the foundation of Jesus calling himself the light, he then applies this to us. And it is the truth that the world is in darkness and the world loves darkness. We see that in John, I think it's chapter 3. The world is in darkness and the world loves darkness darkness, but Jesus is the light. And then notice again in verse 14, the language of Jesus here, he says, you are the light of the world. You, again, this emphatic sense of saying you alone, you are the light of the world. Nobody else, you're not going to, we can't wait for anybody else. The church is the light of the world. And as I, I thought about this, and I, and I encourage you to kind of sit with it for a bit, Jesus himself saying, I'm the light of the world. Then he turns to his disciples and says, you are the light of the world. Like, how incredible is that? We, us, believers, we are the light of the world. 
Now, there are two dynamics to this light, which I want to just briefly unpack for us, which will be helpful in our understanding of it. And uh, our first is our light, the light that we have, is a reflected light. Our light is a reflected light. There's an American preacher and theologian um, called Dr. Barnhouse, and uh, he says, when Christ was in the world, he was like the shining sun. That is here at day, that is gone at night. When the sun sets, the moon comes up. So Christ is the sun, and then the moon comes up. The moon, the church, shines not with its own light, but it shines with a reflected light. When Jesus was on the, on the earth, he said, I am the light. And then we see as he contemplates leaving the earth, he says to his church, now you are the light of the world. So the church then, us, we are a reflected light. We're like the, the moon that reflects the light of the sun to the world around us. So firstly, we're a reflected light. And then secondly, we become light. So there's a sense where we are a reflected light, but at the same, in the same breath, there's actually a sense in which we become light. Ephesians 5.8 says, for at, once, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. So it's this fascinating thing that our, our uh, becoming part of Jesus is, is changes our very nature. That we get to put on the nature of the one who is the light of the world and we become light ourselves. And this is how Peter describes us in 2 Peter 1 verse 4. He describes us as children of light. That we have put on the nature of Christ. So we then are a reflected light, like the moon reflects the light of the sun. And at the same time, we also are light ourselves. We, we put on some of the nature of God as we are light so then how, do we, how does this light shine? Jesus is describing us as light, but then how does the light actually shine into the world around us? And the first thing I want to say, and, and this is probably the most fundamental thing, is that we expose ourselves to light. How do we shine as light? We expose ourselves to light. And uh, I recently read a story about a French matchbox, and a husband bought this matchbox from France. He came back, I think, to America gave it to his wife, and it was a glow-in-the-dark matchbox. And uh, so his wife, wanting to try it out, put the lights off, but they couldn't see the matchbox. So they thought, oh, geez, you know, the French obviously cheated them, and this matchbox doesn't really work. Um, but then they noticed a phrase on the matchbox, and this is what it said. It said, if you want me to shine in the night, keep me in the light. If you want me to shine in the night, keep me in the light. So the matchbox would only work if it has, was exposed to light during the day, then in the night it would shine. And, and so too it is with us, that we need to expose ourselves to Jesus, the true light, in order for us to shine. Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed. There's a, there's a transformation which is happening in us. So again, if we want to shine in the night, if we want to be lights which shine out into the darkness of the world, we need to keep our eyes on the light, onto Jesus. So if we go back to the text, we see that Jesus then describes two examples of how this light should function. 
So the foundation is, if you want to shine in the night, keep your eyes on the light. And then he describes two functions of this light. In verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. A city set, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. This is the first way Jesus describes this light. It's like a city set on a hill which cannot be hidden. And in a kind of basic sense, like believers in the world should be easily seen. There should be no really such thing as an invisible believer. Like you should be easily seen in the world around us. But I want to encourage you that Jesus is not, it's not this kind of like build up some watts here, like build up your voltage so that you can shine brightly in, your world, in the world around us. Jesus is saying, no, I am the light. I've made you light. Now let that light shine in the world around you. Don't you know, self-generate some kind of wattage um, so that you can shine. No, I've, I've made you light. Just let that light shine in the world around you. So firstly, like a city on a hill, and secondly, like a household lamp. Verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. It's interesting when you think about a lamp, because the principal function of a lamp is to like shed light on the things that are around it, to, to reveal what's around it. And uh, it's quite a fascinating thing, because then when you think of Jesus saying, that's what a believer is like, it's like saying, okay, well, the, a believer, the, the way that they function as light is to reveal what's around us in the world, to reveal things as they truly are. The reality of the darkness and the wonder of the light. And it's fascinating when you think about this, because this is what ex exactly what Jesus did. Jesus came into the world, and he, he shone like a light. He brought the, and revealed the reality of the darkness around them, and people saw their own sin and purity and imperfection, and he brought the wonder of new light. There's this reality where light, as it shines, shows the clear distinction between good and evil. And you'll see that Jesus says it's, it's, it's a lamp which is put on a stand and not put under a basket. A lamp which is put on a stand and not put under a basket. And I think some of the power of this is that, Je that Jesus is saying that God in his providence places us like a lamp on a stand in, in, in the position where he wants us to be in order for us to shine lights in the world around us. That God does the placing and we are merely just to shine where we are placed. God places us somewhere specifically and we to shine where we are placed. In one of the commentaries that I was reading, they had this powerful phrase which was, bright in the corner where you are. Like bright in the corner where we are. I think it's, it's so easy for us as we come to these passages to kind of think, wow, like light, I'm supposed to shine light into the whole of the world. What does that look like? What does that mean? And this just boils it down. Just brighten the corner where you are. God has placed you like a household lamp in a specific space and brighten that space around you. And it's almost like for me, it was like this, I was like, it's so simple and so ordinary, and yet at the same time, it's profoundly miraculous. So ordinary yet profoundly miraculous. Just brighten where I am. At work, at varsity, at school, if you're at home with your kids, you just brighten the corner where you are, and God will use it in profound ways. And then Jesus goes on to describe the mode of our shining. What is the shining going to look like? Or what are these, the shining and the salt going to look like? 
And uh, in verse 16, it says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And uh, it's interesting because the, the word good there actually kind of more accurately means like beautiful. There will be these works which people will see and there will be a sense of wonder uh, in them. And if you think about the good works there, remember the context in verse 11 and 12 is in, with, in the midst of persecution. Like in the midst of persecution, you're going to be going, doing beautiful works that the world around you is going to see and give glory to your Father. And the works are going to give glory to the one who is the author of the works. Remember, it's not a self-generated thing. It's like God is enabling us to live in this. And as people around us see that, they give glory to him who is the author of the works. Now, last week uh, during worship, I was this text was kind of running in my mind. And uh, I felt God give me a picture, which I'm hoping is going to help us help capture some of the wonder here. And... Uh, uh, the image was of a cave, like a dark cave, and possibly a cave underwater. And um, then in the cave, there was like a shard of light that came in. And it wasn't in, you know, this isolated piece of light, like somebody left the torch on and it floated down to the cave. But it was, actually, there was a, a crack in the cave and a hole in the surface of the rock which brought light from a place of light. So you're in this dark cave and there's light which is brought in from a place of light. And uh, as I thought about this, I thought like, like God was saying, this is in a sense what we are. This is in a sense what he's called us to be. That he is the light. He's the place of light. He's the place of joy and love. And yet he uses us like a hole in the surface of the rock to shine light into people's lives. And as they see the light, they realize the reality of the darkness that they're in. They can actually begin to see that this is a dark cave that I'm in and that there's a way out. That God would use us like a crack in a, in a cave to draw people to himself. So I want to just read again verse 16. It says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And I, I just want to challenge our thinking here. What does it mean? You know, we can so easily just think, okay, they see good works, and then they give glory to our Father. But like, what is Jesus actually saying here? Like, if you look at the progression of where Jesus is going, and the context of the kingdom of God, and bringing the good news around the kingdom of God, what is, what is Jesus actually saying here? And I think it's not this kind of like, wow, you know, good job, God. Like, um, that guy's pretty salty, so good job. Um, like, it's nice to see, you know, good ethics around us, so thank you for that. You know, it's helping our, our world a little bit. But actually, it's a response to a miraculous work. It's not just general good ethics. It's a response to a miraculous work of God in our lives, and the response from the people around us is fitting to the work that God has done. We see that they see the good works and they give glory to our Father. They see this light which shines into the darkness of a cave from a place of light and they give glory to God. They give God glory. It's this idea of, of God is lifted high. And, and remember about just the context of the kingdom of God. It's, it's submitting to the rule and reign of God. And I think in a sense here, it's, it's saying... 
that uh, the, the truth is that our shining, the way that God uses us in the world, that our, our shining goes out into, the dark, into a dark world, can in a sense have a saving effect on people. People see what Jesus has done in our lives and they are drawn to him like they would be in a dark cave when light breaks through the surface of, of, of the rock. And their response is they give glory. There's an acknowledgement of his glory. They see him as he truly is, and they honor and magnify him. They see him as king. So we are the heralds of the covenant, this covenant of, of Jesus, where Jesus broke light into the darkness of the world. The good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God, that there is a new king and he is reigning and he is ruling. And we are agents of that kingdom as we share the truth of it around us. So I want to encourage us this morning, shine. Shine. Just let the, the work of God in your life be revealed. And make it ordinary and miraculous. Just shine in the corner, like bright in the corner where you are. Wherever God's placed you, bright in that corner and trust that he would use it in a miraculous way. I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we're going to close with one song, if we don't mind singing to our God. That's cool. No? Yes? I back you. <laughs> cool. Father God, we thank you that you're good, King. Uh, I really want to pray, Father, that you would... Yeah, my heart for this morning has, has, has been two things as you've been speaking to me. The one is that we as believers would grasp the ordinary, everyday miracle of being salt and light in the world. I pray that you would, you would make it uh, attainable for us. We so easily just see this thing and we think, wow, that looks amazing, but difficult to live in that. Wow, it looks amazing, but difficult to live in that. And I pray that you would show us that it's as simple as just shining where you've placed us, wherever that is, Father, at home, looking after our kids, at the spa, um, at work, at varsity, wherever it is, just shining where you've placed us, Father. And I pray that we would trust the miracle of the gospel, that as we shine, you would draw people into places of light. And I pray too this morning that even, in a sense, uh, part of the sermon would be a, a light which is cracked through the surface of the rock into a dark cave. And perhaps there's some sitting here who maybe for the first time or just in a new way they see light broken into the darkness of their lives and they can see that you have stepped in. And I, I thank you, King, that it's, it's not just that you create an opening in the cave and you, and you shine light through it and there's, a, there's an opportunity for us to go through, but that you yourself, Jesus, in a sense, you swim through this tight little crack in the cave and you draw us out of the places of darkness and back into places of light. So I just want to create even just a minute or 30 seconds for if, if somebody is, is feeling that, somebody feels you drawing them out of darkness, that they would respond, Father, in whatever way that's, that is, Father, even if it's just as I pray that they're saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, that's me. Come and rescue me. There's darkness which surrounds me. And I pray that you would do that, Father.
And I want to just encourage you, if, if you did respond in any way, um, either if it's this kind of uh, accepting Jesus for the first time into your life that you would tell somebody, or if there's others of you that feel like, yo, I feel like I've lost some of my saltiness. I need to come back to the source. I feel like I'm not shining very brightly. I need to come back to the source of light. And I just want to encourage you to tell somebody, whether it's a life group leader or a friend, that we would encourage one another and build one another up in love towards Jesus.